You're listening to the National Health Executive's Finger on the Pulse podcast with me, your host, Matt Roberts, to guide you beyond the headlines with news, views, and insider truths from across the healthcare sector. Today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Evo North, uniting leaders from the public and private sector to collaborate, share exciting innovations, and build a stronger northern powerhouse together. So welcome back to episode nine of NHE's Finger on the Pulse podcast. And so far in 2020, the sort of big health challenge we've seen has obviously been coronavirus. And we've had to sort of innovate and take quite an open-minded approach to a lot of healthcare as we support one another and improve the necessary infrastructure. Uh, One of those areas we've really seen has been telemedicine, which has been the sort of dynamic approach it's allowed. We've seen clinicians up and down the country turn to quite outside-the-box thinking and really overcome these face-to-face restrictions and necessary measures to keep ensuring patients get the best care. So on today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by one such clinician, Glenn Smith, who alongside being an advanced nurse practitioner, readers of our magazine may also recognise as one of the newest members of our editorial board. So welcome, Glenn. It's great to have you on the show and sort of add your insight to the conversation. Thanks, Matt. It's really good to be here. Perfect. And I suppose we'll dive straight into it. So obviously, as a clinician, I suppose you can probably give us quite a unique insight into telemedicine. We hear it from the sort of procurement side or maybe the industry side don't always get to hear it from the actual clinicians using it i suppose there's um several different elements to it the technology itself is really helpful um it's always been there as a means of communicating for some time and i suppose over the last four to five years there's been various telemedicine platforms promoted out there but it's never really come to the forefront of the clinician's arsenal of tools to assess a patient until very recently, simply because actually of necessity, most people, given the opportunity, prefer to have a face-to-face consultation. And there's a lot of um, clinicians themselves that get so much from the face-to-face interaction with people that find assessing people over the phone or even video consultation is a bit more of a struggle simply because you don't get the same nuances when you're talking to people the visual cues that you get from looking at somebody assessing the way that they present themselves so it's been a huge transition to engage clinical skills assessment skills in new ways to collect the information to inform your decision-making, clinical decision-making, from telemedicine platforms. But given that, um, I think we've adapted quite rapidly. Depending on your patient demographic, different patient demographics struggle with it differently. As a general rule of thumb, not completely perfect rule of thumb, but as a general rule of thumb, older demographics aren't as always with the technological platforms and alongside that as well as telemedicine the ability to do video consultations with attend anywhere at qrx the meeting platforms like zoom and um, whereby the other element of it is being able to equip people in their own homes to do things that you'd normally do face to face like blood pressures blood sugars, one of the things that's happening recently in as part of the NHS England plan to reduce face-to-face contact is, is encouraging people to do their own INR checks at home for warfarin 
titration. So there's a lot of opportunities out there, but all of us are learning. Yeah, and I, I suppose it is very much that case that we're understanding and beginning to really see these um, sort of opportunities we have. And it's striking that right balance between sort of how we maximize using these opportunities and also the benefit of not having to bring patients who don't necessarily need to into these hospital and healthcare environments while still ensuring that yourselves as clinicians have that ability to sort of properly assess patients. A lot of the assessment isn't just the communication between you, it's nonverbal cues, it's sort of appearance setting all of this together. So it's striking a balance, I suspect, is probably the the key bit at the moment. No, absolutely. A lot of the contextual elements to a, an assessment can be very difficult to pick up depending on the, the medium which you're using to actually communicate with your patients, carers, people who are supporting patients in their own home or in residential nursing homes. I mean, one of the sort of conversations I had recently with um, another clinician, they were talking about um, the fact that now, compared to even three or six months ago, has been a very different time and a time that telemedicine can really come forward because patients do like going to hospital and getting that face-to-face interaction. And we finally, because of coronavirus, seen this sort of shift in attitude. Patients now still want to see their doctor or their GP or whoever they need to. But now there's maybe not the same desire to go and see them in person. So there's really sort of an opportunity to actually take advantage of the shift in opinion on telemedicine. There's still an element out there that would much prefer to have face-to-face interaction with people. And there are still certain situations where you just can't get enough information by doing a phone call or a video consult that you have to that you have to speak to somebody face to face in order to understand what's going on yeah and i suppose my, my next question from that is obviously as you say there's the limitations with the technology right now is that necess- maybe something, in your opinion, you think is simply limitations from what's out there now, or is it simply a, a limitation of the whole idea of video technology? Do we, is that something maybe we can, or companies or providers of these solutions should maybe look at? How can we add these extra elements to the best of our abilities to help clinicians? Yeah, I think the platforms will adapt over time. I mean, the if you think of the last three months, the acceleration in the adoption of new technology and the culture around it has changed hugely. We were talking on the phone just before we started recording and you mentioned about the, the difference between some workplaces being adapted for social social distancing, whereas other workplaces are not. So there's going to be an element of the workplace the environment in you're in, whether you can maintain the appropriate social distancing to support reducing the risk of cross-infection but alongside that the need for technology to catch up is really important the at the moment we're still working on technologies that existed already and and as you said in your question there's an element we need to start adopting new technologies you can't print i mean one of the things for instance, I was involved with in the past was the subepidermal moisture scanners for looking at pressure ulcer risk. You can't do an effective visual assessment over a video consultation. You have to physically 
with somebody face to face. But if you equip carers, care agencies, nurses in remote locations like care homes, nursing homes, people's own homes with an objective piece of equipment like the scanner um, or like a blood pressure machine, you have the opportunity to test regularly the ability for you to inform whether you're the care that you're providing is actually working. And it's not just that we've we've moved on in our ability to track people's activity around their own homes. So a lot of on the island, a lot of the vulnerable patients in their own homes have not just the alert buttons, but also devices to track whether they're moving around the house and whether they're actually safe, if there's anything that we should be worried about them. And who knows where that will lead in terms of being able to monitor all of their health needs in their own home. We really just scratch the surface of the things that we can do. Yeah, and I think especially the idea of potentially being able to help upskill and train these sort of more local care um, providers can really have a big impact. We've, I suppose, as a healthcare um, service, become very used to having specialists where patients have to travel to those specialists but actually if you can give the right tools and have communication access to allow the specialists from their own hopes elsewhere to get into those home stuff it it reduces not just the burden on those specialist areas but also on the patients themselves and that i think at least from my view would be a significant step forward that this technology is starting to allow us to achieve yeah it, it's the ability to spread your impact over a wider area because is your time best served by doing a lot of face-to-face contacts which are quite labor intensive or is it better to spread the ability to optimize face-to-face contacts by other clinicians to, to achieve the same or similar outcomes across the population and that's always been a debate with specialisms certainly Back when I was doing tissue viability, there was always this kind of dichotomy in specialisms around the specialisms that seemed to want to see every single patient and keep all of the clinical decision making to themselves and others that were quite happy to diffuse the clinical decision making throughout the system of care. And that's where I think the the emerging field over the last 10 to 15 years of systems leadership and complex adaptive systems, the ability for clinicians not just to measure their impact in terms of direct face-to-face contacts, but also in terms of their ability to influence a system to deliver good outcomes to a population is hugely important. And the role of health technology in that as it, go, as it goes forward is one of those multipliers that if you drop it into the pond, is eventually going to ripple out and make a huge impact over a larger population. It will give us the opportunity to expand what we can normally achieve by spreading out the influence over a wider group of clinicians of face-to-face contacts. Yeah, I suppose the, the, the point that comes from that is that we obviously we talk a lot about developing technology and really nuancing it so that it 
can have all these wonderful uses. But some of that development also comes down to a very human side of changing cultures, especially for clinicians who have maybe been in sort of the, the health sector for a long period of time. Some will be very good at adapting and sort of changing a very face-to-face approach to a mixed bag, but others may not. And I think there's maybe needs to be a focus on that as well in this developing, not just dropping in the technology, but to allow that ripple to, to occur, really sort of coaching and helping clinicians get used to it. Yeah, it's it's kind of what function is it going to play? I've always had this analogy when I've been teaching about the light bulb the light you know the function of a light bulb is to provide light and if it wasn't there that's how you know because it'd be dark and it's the same thing with technology it's what is the technology going to add that couldn't be done by anything else what is the you know what is the impact it's going to have which can't be done by anything currently and that's going to be the game changer in terms of being able to measure the impact of the adoption of health technology. And it's like everything. You always have your early adopters. You always have people that can perceive the value of technology. And it's those individuals that end up being beacons and advocates for those te- the adoption of that ton- technology to the wider society. Today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Evo North uniting leaders from the public and private sector to collaborate, share exciting innovations, and build a stronger Northern powerhouse together. I suppose from your sort of use so far of um, sort of remote technology and this sort of thing, what sort of benefits have you yourself or you maybe your colleagues seen? The, the fact is at this moment in time, we are constrained by the coronavirus outbreak to restrict our face-to-face contact as much as we can the ability of technology to equip care homes for instance to do urinalysis to do blood pressures means that when we pick up the phone and carers are concerned about somebody it matches the subjective information that a carer will have about their concerns for an individual they're more confused they're concerned about their day-to-day they seem to be deteriorating with objective data around whether you know their blood pressure is a problem or their heart rate is a problem so you get the match of objective and subjective data but as well as that it also means that you have the ability to measure over time whether any of the interventions that you actually suggest like changing medication, nutrition, things like that, that they're having a positive benefit because you can objectively measure over time whether those things are actually improving somebody's outcomes. So you have the ability using a lot of the technology that we've got out there nowadays, not only to communicate in a situation where actually the the restrictions are, are very real and, and very necessary, but also the ability to make decisions based on the information you're receiving and be able to then measure over time whether the decisions you've made are the right ones given the objective and subjective information. 
obviously before coronavirus demanded this shift, we were still starting to see um, a move towards a lot of preventative um, approaches to medicine. We were seeing a lot of uh, steps taken in people's lives, which the ability to gather a lot of this data, both objective and subjective, can really give a greater image, not just, I suppose, to clinicians when a problem arises, but to track through sort of the good periods, for want of a better way of describing it. Um, Because I suppose patients are probably a lot more likely to record that data and be able to um, work with, with clinicians and with care providers to track that sort of thing if they don't feel that they're being burdened with having to trip out travel out to a hospital or a care site every sort of few weeks and sort of track it. Yeah, and it's, I think one of the flip sides to technology as well is the, is is it intuitive? Does it have an ease of use? You know, is it out of the box useful? You know, and I've always got this um, saying when I'm teaching clinicians, is it, um, it, I call it the nine o'clock Saturday night problem. And the nine o'clock Saturday night problem is, is can you take it out the box nine o'clock on a Saturday night when you haven't got your specialists around, haven't got your senior clinicians? And can you use it effectively to for, for the purpose for which it was given? You know, and that's the, that's the test for me is actually something that's intuitive, you know how to use it, is well designed, and actually is performing the function for which it was actually there for is actually really helpful. And the more intuitive it is and the more well-designed it is, the more people are going to adopt it because there's less kind of education, training, integration needed for its implementation in practice. You know, a lot of the – you think about some of the early examples, like just the advent of Microsoft Windows – Windows was, you know, a revolutionary concept because it actually created an intuitive interface between a person and a computer screen. And it's those kind of paradigm shifts that we're going to have to adopt in order to adapt to a new arena. And, you know, we're going now from a reactive perspective where um, we gave people devices to track whether something was actually working, to them picking up the the devices themselves and then picking up the phone or contacting somebody and saying, I've been measuring my blood pressure, I've been looking at my blood sugars, I've been doing this, I've been doing that. The technology tells me this is outside of the normal range. What can I do about it? And it's that kind of switch now which is actually informing the public to go from a reactive to a proactive um, result which may actually improve public health generally yeah we you, you sort of it, it's giving the opportunity to do to empower patients to take sort of their own stake in their, their health which is something that we've seen repeated in goals and future plans and objectives and for a number of years but we're starting to sort of see the the first real tangible steps to take that and it, it, it's very much a, a case as you touched on that technology will play a huge role in the future of healthcare but we don't want to introduce technology for the sake of technology it's got to be the right technology it's got to be useful and it's got to have I suppose clinicians inputs on that you're the sort of people who use this day in day out I suppose my, my question next will be 
do you think there is enough communication going on between the technology providers and inventors and solution creators and the actual clinicians that use it? Or could there be more dialogue? Yeah, I mean, I think there needs to be more dialogue. It depends on the companies. Some companies um, have been exceptionally good at getting voice, doing voice of the customer work because they want their technology to be um, as user-friendly as possible. And alongside that, the it's the from the industry's perspective, it's they need to do that because essentially they need to influence strategically different groups, different audiences in order to get their technology adopted. And it's the different strokes for different folks analogy in the sense that you want frontline clinicians to use the technology, but also you need to demonstrate, say, the impact on improved pathways and the impact on health economics, on finance and reduced contacts in the future because you're actually solving problems now. And that's sometimes where I find the struggle in industry is the ability to differentiate between stuff that's preventative and stuff that's actually a treatment-orientated outcome because very often what you find is when they are they'll get clinicians you're they'll persuade clinicians that actually a particular technology is very valuable but it's from a health economics perspective they're not very effective at demonstrating that that technology has a real impact on the overall healthcare system in which case it won't be adopted because fundamentally it's it's got to have a positive impact on resources because if it doesn't have a positive impact on resources in a finite system like the NHS, it will in the long term struggle to get itself adopted. That's maybe sometimes the the part that's not always seen is that we hear a lot about introducing this technology, all of these great things, but there are many sort of boxes they have to tick. It's got to be user-friendly. It's got to affect resources. It's got to make sure that the governance and all of the sort of recordings really sort of efficient, it's correct and this is people's lives, health that we're dealing with. So it very much does have to be correct and functional and sort of as good as it can be. Yeah. And that's where the recent acceleration around coronavirus has been quite a eye-opener for a lot of people around how actually quickly things could be done if the appropriate motivation was behind people it's just a shame that it's taken something that's threatened or taken huge numbers of lives to accelerate that adoption when in actual fact there are much wider problems that even post coronavirus we're going to be tackling that really need the same level of focus the level of attention and the positive and sustained application of effort in order to achieve positive outcomes. Yeah, and, and that's sort of the crucial point of it, that, as you say, of this sort of rapid acceleration of adopting technology has come out of a, well, a, a horrific sort of situation in coronavirus and the, the circumstances that that's brought. But there has been great learning, innovation, and a sort of attitudinal shift to bringing this technology in. It's now about using and retaining that learning past coronavirus as we restore services as we move beyond the peak and hopefully in the future away from this virus that we don't lose out on the steps we've gained 
Yeah. The 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 different the difference is in times when you don't have quite a large external threat, the ability for organizations, particularly large organizations like the NHS, to manufacture the necessity to meet a demand for something is really difficult. Now, I'll give you an example. The comedian Eddie Izzard actually announced a comedy tour in Europe when he couldn't speak any languages in the European in any European languages. So he actually created this demand for him to learn to speak other languages and not only learn to speak other languages, but to to be able to actually communicate comedy in the idiomatic version of other languages in order to provide do his comedy output. And it's that kind of manufacturing necessity that will sustain in time when the coronavirus is not there, the ability for people to continue to sustain their output in terms of research, in terms of innovation, in terms of being able to have the strategic vision to use all of the resources at our demand to solve other problems. Coronavirus is the immediate one, but the longer-term ones like cancer, dementia, mental health issues, child mortality, poverty, all of these things are still going to be out there when coronavirus has died down. And in actual fact, over the next four to five years, as I believe one of the key experts that testified to the Health Select Committee said, you're looking at a recovery period of potentially four to five years. And that's when actually you need to sustain innovation and output, not just for the immediate threat. For for that, um, from your point of view, obviously, throughout your, your career, offered and helped uh, give guidance to other clinicians and to um, members of the health sector. I guess I guess what the message what message would you give to these people going in that period? I suspect it will be very much like we've heard throughout this podcast to stay open to technology and to keep this momentum going. And also be very, very clear about how you're going to measure the impact of the technology, because nothing is going to be adopted without being able to prove it's actually had a positive impact on outcomes. You know, you have to have a tangible, pick it up and walk away kind of message, which says if you adopt this technology, you're going to save lives, you're going to save time, you're going to save resources. And it probably feels quite, um, not unpopular, but it probably feels quite uncomfortable for people who work in the NHS in a clinical role um, to say, well, why should I worry about resources when actually I'm trying to save people's lives? Well, the resource element of it is really important because the more we can save resources, the more we can stretch the resources to encompass the needs of more and more people so there is a real ethical demand to use resources effectively and people who are developing technologies have to demonstrate that the technology that they want adopted is actually going to have not just the positive outcome at the bedside but it's also going to have the positive outcome in the boardroom as well around being able to demonstrate at all levels of the organisations and people it's going to be involved with, it's going to have a positive impact. 
yeah, it, it, it's very much the sort of push and pull of um, sort of healthcare and innovation. As you say, it has to meet all of the, the demands that we have as a sort of healthcare service. And obviously, I think that sort of rounds up nicely as a sort of powerful um, a point exactly how you can these technologies can move forward and how we can really sort of achieve the potential we're starting to see um from myself and i'm sure from all of our listeners really appreciate you taking the time glenn to sort of talk to her offer real insight into all of this thanks much been an absolute pleasure not only as we touched on the introduction have you taken the time to do this podcast you are also one of our new editorial board members so if listeners have really found Glenn's sort of insight and input as, as valuable as I have myself, um, do make sure you check out our digital magazine edition. Glenn is both uh, a contributor in the comment section and our, our industry voice. And I, if I'm not mistaken, is also in the upcoming new edition as we continue to work closely with Glenn and fellow contributors from across the healthcare sector. Today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Evo North uniting leaders from the public and private sector to collaborate, share exciting innovations, and build a stronger Northern powerhouse together. Thanks for listening to this episode of NHE's Finger on the Post podcast. Join the conversation on social media or get in touch through the link on our website. To stay up to date with all the latest news and episodes, make sure to subscribe, drop us a rating on whatever streaming service you're using. This has been National Health Executive's Finger on the Post podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.